Hello everyone, it's Aisha here from God FM. I wanted to share with you this uh, amazing thing I found about Project Open Mind Abduction Mind Control and Facebook is a life log. MKUltra and a new project Open Mind that uses RHIC. It's all to do with Edom, <laughs> the Edomites, <laughs> the fake Jews, and uh, controlling your mind. Um, I've been saying for some time, if you've got a Facebook, I don't recommend it. I believe Facebook is uh, creating a copy of yourself. Um, it monitors, watches you. Your phone also takes photos every three seconds of you. And it also can uh, listen to your voice and create a whole conversation with your own voice and pretend to be you with their own agenda. So uh, all of this is very interesting. I think a lot of people are waking up to the MK Ultra theme of things. And uh, basically, I think there's more people under MK Ultra than you realize. <laughs> I think that everything is under the control of the Lord. And I think it's really interesting. So I want you to have a good listen to it. I hope you enjoy it. It's Aisha from God FM. Take care. All right, so a couple things that I wanted to cover that I found interesting, and I just didn't have time to cover it on my normal show. So the first thing is called Project Open Mind, um, R-H-I-C-E-D-U-M. Could this technology be used to simulate an alien abduction, quote unquote? You know, they're coming out with all this so-called disclosure from the Pentagon about alleged UFOs. And I think that there's something probably more nefarious going on here. Quote, tell me about your interrogators. They usually start out as a small gray, but then they turn out to be a normal male, nondescript, he always gets his answers. He knows how to get the answer to each question he asks. There's footnotes here. According to Lincoln Lawrence, author of Were We Controlled? RHIC, EDOM, Radio Hypnotic Intracerebral Control, and Electronic Dissolution of Memory involves radio contact with a subject who has been previously hypnotized and taught to perform certain actions and maintain certain attitudes. Post-hypnotic suggestions are transmitted by radio waves triggering a certain preconditioned behavior. In a 1977 Gallery Magazine article cited by Schlefflin and Optin, Lawrence states, the electronic dissolution of memory alters time senses by emitting radio waves and ultrasonic signal tones which act upon memory storage chemicals in the brain. The electronic dissolution of memory is accomplished by electronically jamming the brain, thereby causing the neurotransmitter acetyl acetylchlorine to create static which blocks out sight and sounds. You would then have no memory of what you saw or heard. Your mind would be a blank. Acetylchlorine was the first neurotransmitter to be discovered and the most common neurotransmitter found in the brain. Acetylchlorine is the neurotransmitter secreted by the motor nerves to excite skeletal muscles, and it is activated by the vagus nerve, the 10th tenth, the tenth cranial nerve, and the medulla that innervates most organs of the abdomen, as well as the nerves that control most internal organs. 
Acetylcholine is one of the uh, primary neurotransmitters involved in memory. Memory involves different parts of the brain and four different processes, a sensory registry, immediate memory, short-term memory, long-term memory. Additionally, each of these four processes has its own time scale. Another common neurotransmitter involved with learning and memory is norepinephrine. There are several neurotransmitters and amino acids involved with learning and memory, and each has a specific function. It seems logical that if electrical impulses are used to bombard a person's brain, which is a complex neurochemical organ, this will affect the individual's neurotransmitters. If these levels are sufficiently altered, then memory would also be affected. As far as we can tell, RHIC Edom first interfaced in Lincoln Lawrence's book in 1967. According to Boart, quote, Lawrence may have had much more evidence about RHIC than he was allowed to present. His credentials indicated that he had been working in liaison with the Department of Defense, unquote. In 1975, a journalist named James L. Moore claimed he had been given secret documents by CNA, CIA personnel describing RH, uh, RHIC Edom. If this is some kind of elaborate hoax, then why would it surface again almost 10 years later and be connected with the CIA? If this was an intentional leak, what could the agency gain by releasing this information? Interestingly, according to Boart, quote, a research and development team at the Space and Biology Laboratory of the University of California at the LA Brain Research Institute found a way to stimulate the brain by creating an electrical field completely outside the head. Dr. W. Ross Addy simulated the brain with electrical pulse levels, which were far below those thought to be effectual in the old implanting technique. Also of importance to our discussion is that as early as 1975, scientists were also testing a primitive mind-reading quote-unquote machine and achieved positive results. If you think these technologies sound implausible, take a look at what we have today in the form of directed energy weapons, which emit highly focused energy, transferring that energy to a target to manipulate or damage it. And check out our references and links on this and related pages. Potential applications of this technology include anti-personnel weapon systems, missile defense systems, the disabling of vehicles such as cars, drones, jet skis, and electronic devices such as GPS devices and mobile phones. The energy can come in various forms, including but not limited to electromagnetic radiation, including radio frequency, microwave lasers, and masers, particles with mass, particle beam weapons, and sound with the use of sonic weapons. So you can continue reading the rest of this. Um, a few examples of low to mid-level psyops are The Guardian Case, The Alien Autopsy Film, and Serpo. Tactics such as these have been used against people and organizations investigating the subject for decades. Take a look at NSA locations in the United States and why San Antonio's Lackland Air Force Base is probably why Whitley Strieber is experiencing this something wicked my way comes. A 46-year-old male abductee experiencer and my lab victim who wishes to remain anonymous updates CIA renditions. 
regarding CIA renditions in the 1953 budget. Since the original version of this article was published, the link to the CIA source below was changed to redirect to a questionable page on a different site. We've provided new sources below for your reference. Um, MUFON State Director compares alien abductions with CIA renditions MK Ultra, MK Ultra mind control torture. Additionally, the links from wikipedia.org have been killed and the original source site was taken off the Internet Archive Wayback Machine. Quick view of MK Ultra sub projects. This site is on the Wayback. This link was removed. CIA documents suggest that chemical, biological, and radiological means were investigated for the purpose of mind control as part of MKUltra. A secret memorandum granted the MKUltra director up to 6% of the CIA research budget in fiscal year 1953 without oversight or accounting. An estimated $10 million U.S. dollars, roughly $87.5 million adjusted for inflation or more, was spent. And there are a couple links here. New references below. CIA research budget, 1953. And we have book one, Foreign and Military Intelligence. Funding mechanisms for highly sensitive CIA research and development projects that study the use of biological and chemical materials in altering human behavior. The projects involved research to develop capability in the covert use of biological and chemical materials. This area involves production of various physiological conditions which could support present or future clandestine operations. Aside from the offensive potential, the development of a comprehensive capability in this field of covert chemical and biological warfare gives us a thorough knowledge of the enemy's theoretical potential, thus enabling us to defend ourselves against a foe who might not be as restrained in the use of these technologies as we are. MKUltra was approved by the DCI on April 13, 1953, along with the lines proposed by ADDP Helms. And this gets into that. There are other uh, links here, interesting applications of electrocephalography, introduction and brief history of MyLabs, Rehabs, and MKUltra. There are full links here that you can read. Why do some abductee experiencers see military personnel during a quote-unquote alien abduction? Do humans possess technology that can simulate alien abductions, radiohypnotic intracerebral control, and electronic dissolution of memory? Interesting applications of electroencephalography, hypnosis, historical perspective, and the pros and cons, wisdom for the by and by. And these are the different sources here. Now, this is a really interesting, um, a very interesting uh, article, and I think that there's a lot more to this than we currently understand, you know. Um, the next thing I want to cover real quick, and I will include the links to all of this um, below. My reservation about the right. This is from Apex. Sincerity or signaling. I've written before about not feeling at home on the left or the right. Even so, I have historically associated with the left more than the right and am still partial to many leftist positions. The issue, of course, is that the left has become, or maybe it always was, a poor excuse for a meaningful, promising movement. 
Instead, it is filled with psychopaths and narcissists. That's absolutely true. Naturally, recoiling against the left makes swinging the pendulum to the other side look more appealing. And so exploring the right, which has been significantly more welcoming on a personal level in many cases, seems like a good idea. My chief reservation with the right is as follows. We will always disagree on much, and that's okay, but in the moments and issues we do agree, I have to determine if our agreement is sincere, or if the right is simply playing by the rules of friend-slash-enemy politics or some other cynicism. An example, I'm quite sure all of you have heard the hundred or so business leaders, quote-unquote, who got together to discuss how absolutely atrocious the new voting laws are in Georgia and elsewhere. I don't need to tell you that corporations have been major players in running our country for a very, very long time, and that this certainly is not the first time a bunch of powerful elites got together in a smoky room to plot out how to more effectively plunder the country. What I find fascinating in this event is the response to this, especially when understood through the lens of friend-enemy politics. There is a fundamental divide between two groups of people based on an extremely foundational element of our worldviews. Can the prominent institutions that run our lives be trusted? So when it comes to the business boycott issue, we have two sides, the over-socialized versus the kind of skeptical of the market but still liberals. I've discussed the over-socialized before. Put simply, socialization is a process by which individuals become accustomed to and internalize the norms, values, and ideologies of the society they live in. There are individuals, institutions, and groups that we interface with and through which we learn the rules of society. So, so socialization hands you a packet of good that the society recognizes and expects you to internalize as your own goods. Failure to do so can lead to exclusion, punishment, etc. Someone becomes social socialized when they internalize the goods of society into their moral space, but someone becomes over-socialized when they either elevate those internalized goods to a status of higher goods or they have no other goods at all. In this scenario, the over-socialized trust the dominant institutions who tell them the Republicans passing voter ID laws are evil fascists and must be stopped. Of course, even if you were never a fan of corporations, they are fighting the good fight now, so they must be applauded. This is the dilemma of the over-socialized. They are neck deep in friend-enemy politics with no way to get out. The problem here is simple. People select a person or label, assign it a moral value, and make that one of their higher goods. Rather than allowing my moral values to decide who my friends and enemies are, I've allowed my friends and enemies to determine what my principles are, what I should support and oppose. Uh, this is derangement. Derangement is basing your view of good and evil based on what someone does. Over-socialization in this context can best be understood as unthinkingly accepting the framing of an issue by a perceived authority and using that framing as a good. Much of the left is over-socialized, which perhaps goes quite a long way in explaining why these so-called rebels, quote-unquote, end up supporting the system they claim to despise. How can one oppose a system when one's understanding 
understanding of the system is provided and shaped by the institutions in control of that system. The media and tech elites are so adamant about defending quote-unquote democracy because democracy is the system in which they can propagandize and manipulate the people to support elite interests and then legitimize those interests via voting. Disinformation, quote-unquote, plays a similar role in terms of narrative defense. Certain ideas, sources, people, etc. are declared off-limits and hazardous. The over-socialized simply take the map of the world handed to them by Blue Empire and then wonder why their rebellions don't break anything, perhaps because the map you are using isn't telling you the right places to rebel if you actually hate the system. But here we encounter a problem. The over-socialized do not appear to be the only ones playing by the friend-enemy politics rules. Recently, Josh Howley has gone on yet another crusade, quote-unquote, against big tech. Monopoly and liberty do not go together. Monopoly is the enemy of the people's freedom, he says. Very much. You know, I, I think the last few weeks have made something very clear that has always been true in American history, and that is monopoly and liberty do not go together. Monopoly is the enemy of the people's freedom. That's certainly true of Major League Baseball. It's true of big tech. It's true of the monopolies that we see more and more across our economy. When you have concentrations of economic power, political power follows. Now, we've seen this before in American history. I mean, this is not unfamiliar to us. A century ago, Massive corporations, the railroads, U.S. Steel, attempted to amass economic power and succeeded. They attempted to amass political power and for a time succeeded. And we know what the solution to that is. The solution is you break them up. The solution is trust busting. And that's exactly what needs to occur today. This is about preserving the ability of the democratic process to go forward. The fact that Major League Baseball would get together and try to punish a state because the elected representatives of that state and the elected governor of that state settled on a law to preserve election integrity is unbelievable. But of course, Major League Baseball is not the only one. We had news just this past weekend that 100 CEOs of the largest corporations in the world met together to talk about how they are going to launch some sort of plan to influence other states across the country. This is exactly what the railroad barons tried to do a century ago. It's exactly the same thing. It's trying to control the democratic process. It's trying to leverage economic power to exert political influence. It's trying to push forward a particular political and ideological agenda. Yeah, Mike Lee is um, not really great. I see his creepy, creepy face there. <laughs> but we have a question now. Is the opposition to monopoly claimed by Howley limited to big tech? Will it expand? Will it expand to companies that are also dominant but give Howley money? Will Holly and Cruz be willing to take on the companies that donate to other Republicans? Do they have the institutional backing and personal fortitude to do so? I doubt it. Conservatives talk about principles quite a lot, but herein lies the question, will their opposition to the over-socialized be ruled by friend-enemy politics, or will it develop out of sincere commitment to a new set of values that genuinely holds that the public square, virtual and physical, must not have access limited to it? 
that e-commerce and social media sites should not be allowed to prevent individuals and institutions from using their sites, in effect accessing the virtual public square, unless they engage in harassment, illegal obscenity, or otherwise break a law, and hate speech is not breaking a law. If Mr. Hawley is serious and sincere about his claim that monopoly is the enemy of liberty, and he should be since he is correct, then he's beginning to develop a set of principles that would allow him to escape the market fetishism and liberalism that conservatives have been suffering under for far too long. But I still wonder if people are really skeptical of the market. Many seem to believe that some outside force has perverted it and that real capitalism slash liberalism is out there as a perfect system. If only we could discover it, implement it, and then get out of its way. This is where I remain hesitant about declaring some kind of alliance with the right. If the right has begun to sincerely and meaningfully abandon its market fetishism, then we can have a discussion. Small segments of the right are indeed doing this, And small remnants of the non-over-socialized left are worth engaging with, but if these positions are not driven by sincere principles and instead are driven by cynical pandering or friend-enemy politics, any discussion will be pointless. That is absolutely correct, and I understand what he's saying here. I mean, I often had the same feelings about this myself. I was certainly not a Republican before 2017. and or 16 whatever and i think that i was not a democrat either i mean i had voted democrat before when i was younger you know like right out of high school um but very quickly saw that that was bullshit and i was never interested in politics at all because it just seemed like both sides were nonsense and we're just opposite sides of the same coin and i think that that is indeed the truth. And so, um, you know, I understand what he's saying. Is there, is the conservative opposition to liberal power, is it real? Or is it simply, um, you know, they take that side because it's opposite of the left, but they don't have a real strong, um, you know, feeling about this either way. They're just doing it to be the different, you know, or to to be the opposite side of that. So I definitely understand what he is saying. And then finally, I just wanted to share this article from Limited Hangout. This is Whitney Webb's publication, The Military Origins of Facebook. This is interesting. It's something that we've kind of discussed before. Facebook's growing role in the ever-expanding surveillance and, quote, pre-crime, unquote, apparatus of the national security state demands new scrutiny of the company's origins and its products as they relate to a former controversial DARPA-run surveillance program that was essentially analogous to what is currently the world's largest social network. Life log! In mid-February, 
Daniel Baker, a U.S. veteran described by the media as anti-Trump, anti-government, anti-white supremacist, and anti-police, was charged by a Florida grand jury with two counts of transmitting a communication in interstate commerce containing a threat to kidnap or injure. The communication in question had been posted by Baker on Facebook, where he had created an event page to organize an armed counter-rally to one planned by Donald Trump supporters at the Florida capital of Tallahassee, on January 6th, quote, if you are afraid to die fighting the enemy, then stay in bed and live. Call all of your friends and rise up. Baker had written on his Facebook event page. Baker's case is notable as it is one of the first pre-crime arrests based entirely on social media posts. The logical conclusion of the Trump administration's and now Biden administration's push to normalize arresting individuals for online posts to prevent violent acts before they can happen. From the increasing sophistication of the U.S. intelligence-slash-military contractor Palantir's predictive policing programs to the formal announcement of the Justice Department's disruption and early engagement program in 2019 to Biden's first budget, which contains $111 million for pursuing and managing, quote, increasing domestic terrorism caseloads, unquote, the steady advance toward a pre-crime-centered war on domestic terror has been notable under every post-9-11 presidential administration. This new so-called war on domestic terror has actually resulted in many of these types of posts on Facebook. And while Facebook has long sought to portray itself as a quote-unquote town square that allows people from across the world to connect, a deeper look into its apparently military origins and continual military connections reveals that the world's largest social network was always intended to act as a surveillance tool to identify Identify and target domestic dissent. Part one of this two-part series on Facebook and the U.S. national security state explores the social media network's origins and the timing and nature of its rise as it relates to a controversial military program that was shut down the same day that Facebook launched. The program, known as LifeLog, was one of several controversial post-9-11 surveillance programs pursued by the Pentagon's DARPA that threatened to destroy privacy and civil liberties in the United States, while also seeking to harvest data for producing humanized, quote-unquote, artificial intelligence. As this report will show, Facebook is not the only Silicon Valley giant whose origins coincide closely with this same series of DARPA initiatives and whose current activities are providing both the engine and the fuel for a high-tech war on domestic dissent. That sounds nice. DARPA's data mining for national security and to, quote, humanize, unquote, AI. In the aftermath of the September 11 attacks, DARPA, in close collaboration with the U.S. intelligence community, specifically the CIA, began developing a, quote, pre-crime, unquote, approach to combating terrorism known as Total Information Awareness, or TIA. The purpose of TIA was to develop an all-seeing military surveillance apparatus. The official logic behind TIA was that invasive surveillance of the entire U.S. population was necessary to prevent terror attacks, bioterrorism events, and even naturally occurring disease outbreaks. The architect of TIA and the man who led it during its relatively brief existence was John Poindexter, 
best known for being Ronald Reagan's national security advisor during the Iran-Contra affair, and for being convicted of five felonies in relation to that scandal. A less well-known activity of Iran-Contra figures like Poindexter and Oliver North was their development of the main core database to be used in, quote, continuity of government, unquote, protocols. Main Corps was used to compile a list of U.S. dissidents and potential troublemakers to be dealt with if the COG protocols were ever invoked. These protocols could be invoked for a variety of reasons, including widespread public opposition to a U.S. military intervention abroad, widespread internal dissent, or a vaguely defined moment of national crisis or time of panic. Americans were not informed if their name was placed on the list, and a person could be added to the list for merely having attended a protest in the past, for failing to pay taxes, or for some other often trivial behaviors deemed quote-unquote unfriendly by its architects in the Reagan administration. In light of this, it was no exaggeration when New York Times columnist William Safir remarked that with TIA, Poindexter is now realizing his 20-year dream, getting the data mining power to snoop on every public and private act of every American. The TIA program met with considerable citizen outrage as it was revealed to the public in early 2003. TIA critics included the American Civil Liberties Union, which claimed that surveillance effort would kill privacy in America because every aspect of our lives would be cataloged, with several mainstream media outlets warned that TIA was fighting terror by terrifying U.S. citizens. As a result of the pressure, DARPA changed the program's name to Terrorist Information Awareness to make it sound less like a national security panopticon and more like a program aiming specifically at terrorists in the post-9-11 era. And take a look at this logo. (laughs) Oh, my God. If that's not creepy... um. I don't know what is. The TIA projects were not actually closed down. However, with most moved to the classified portfolios of the Pentagon and U.S. Intel community, some became Intel-funded and guided private sector endeavors such as Peter Thiel's Palantir, while others resurfaced years later under the guise of combating the COVID crisis. Soon after TIA was initiated, a similar DARPA program was taking shape under the direction of a close friend of Poindexter's DARPA program manager, Douglas Gage. Gage's project, LifeLog, sought to build a database tracking a person's entire existence that included an individual's relationships and communications, phone calls, mail, etc., their media consumption habits, their purchases, and much more in order to build a digital record of everything an individual says, sees, or does. LifeLog would then take this unstructured data and organize it into discrete episodes or snapshots, while also mapping out relationships, memories, events, and experiences experiences. LifeLog per gauge and supporters of the program would create a permanent and searchable electronic diary of a person's entire life, which DARPA argued could be used to create next-generation digital assistance and offer users a near-perfect digital memory. Gage insisted, even after the program was shut down, that individuals would have had complete control over their own data collection efforts as they could decide when to turn the sensors on or off and decide who will share the data. In the years since then, inoculate promises of user control have been made by the tech giants of Silicon Valley, 
only to be broken repeatedly for profit and to feed the government's domestic surveillance apparatus. The information that LifeLog gleaned from an individual's every interaction with technology would be combined with information obtained from a GPS transmitter that tracked and documented the person's location, audiovisual sensors that recorded what the person saw and said, as well as biomedical monitors that gauged the person's health. Like TIA, LifeLog was promoted by DARPA as potentially supporting medical research and the early detection of an emerging epidemic. Critics in mainstream media outlets and elsewhere were quick to point out the program would inevitably used to, bu- to be used to build profiles on dissidents as well as suspected terrorists. Combined with TIA's surveillance of individuals at multiple levels, LifeLog went further by, quote, adding physical information like how we feel and media data like what we read to this transactional data. One critic, Lee Tien of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, warned at the time that the programs that DARPA was pursuing, including LifeLog, have obvious easy paths to homeland security deployments. At the time, DARPA publicly insisted that LifeLog and TIA were not connected, despite their obvious parallels, and that LifeLog would not be used for clandestine surveillance. However, DARPA's own documentation on LifeLog noted that the project, quote, will be able to infer the user's routines, habits, and relationships with other people, organizations, places, and objects, and to exploit these patterns to ease its task, which acknowledged its potential use as a tool of mass surveillance. In addition to the ability to profile potential enemies of the state, LifeLog had another goal that was arguably more important to the national security state and its academic partners, the quote-unquote humanization and advancement of artificial intelligence. In late 2002, just months prior to announcing the existence of LifeLog, DARPA released a strategy document detailing development of AI by feeding it with massive floods of data from various sources. The post-9-11 military surveillance projects, LifeLog and TIA being only two of them, offered quantities of data that had previously been unthinkable to obtain and that could potentially hold the key to achieving the hypnotherapy hypnotized technological singularity. The 2002 DARPA document even discussed DARPA's efforts to create a brain-machine interface that would feed human thoughts directly into machines to advance AI by keeping it constantly awash in freshly mined data. One of the projects outlined by DARPA, the Cognitive Computing Initiative, sought to develop sophisticated AI through the creation of a, quote, enduring personal cognitive assistant, unquote, later termed the perceptive perceptive assistant that learns, or PAL. PAL, from the very beginning, was tied to LifeLog, which was originally intended to result in granting an AI assistant human-like decision-making and comprehension abilities by spinning masses of unstructured data into narrative format. The would-be main researchers for the LifeLog project also reflect the program's end goal of creating humanized AI. For instance, Howard Schrobe, 
at the MIT AI laboratory and his team at the time were set to be intimately involved in LifeLog. Schrobe had previously worked for DARPA on the, quote, evolutionary design of complex software, unquote, after becoming assistant associate director of the AI lab at MIT and has devoted his lengthy career to building cognitive style AI. In the years after LifeLog was canceled, he again worked for DARPA as well as on the intelligence community related AI research projects. In addition, the AI lab at MIT was intimately connected with the 1980s corporation and DARPA contractor called Thinking Machines, which was founded by and or employed by many of the lab's luminaries, including Danny Hillis, Marvin Minsky, and Eric Lander, and sought to build AI supercomputers capable of human-like thought. All three of these individuals were later revealed to be close associates of and or sponsored by the intelligence-linked pedophile Jeffrey Epstein, who also generously donated to MIT as an institution and was a leading founder of and advocate for transhumanist-related scientific research. Soon after the LifeLog program was shuttered, critics worried that, like TIA, it would continue under a different name. For example, Lee Tien of the EFF told Vice at the time of LifeLog's cancellation, quote, It would not surprise me to learn that the government continued to fund research that pushed this area forward without calling it LifeLog, unquote. Along with its critics, one of the would-be researchers working on LifeLog, MIT's David Carger, would, was also certain that the DARPA project would continue continue in a repackaged form. He told Wire that I am sure such research will continue to be funded under some other title. I can't imagine DARPA was dropping out of such a key research area. It kind of makes you think about MKUltra, right? I'm sure that continued too, just under a different name. The answer to these speculations appear to lie with the company that launched the exact same day that LifeLog was shuttered by the Pentagon, Facebook. <laughs> Teal information awareness. Um, you know, I'm going to leave off here. There's about, um, we're about halfway through this article, and there's a lot more to go. Um, and as you can see, she's already indicated there's going to be a part two to this article. I will put the links for the three things we covered into the video description. Um, and, you know, when the second part comes out, I encourage everybody to, to go read it. Um, her uh, publication is called Unlimited Hangout. You can find that there. And I hope that she releases this soon because this is something that we've been uh, researching for a while. You know, I mean, how obvious is it that Facebook has the same um, uh, abilities, I guess, as LifeLog? It's the same thing, right? Documenting an entire person's existence, you know, looking at what media they're consuming, following them around, listening to them 24-7, and that is exactly what Facebook does. So um, the fact that one was shuttered and the other launched on the same day is a little bit more than coincidental, I think. And so I think it's interesting that she's looking into this now. What I also find very interesting is the connection with a pandemic. We know that right before 9-11, there was a simulation done called Dark Winter. Dark Winter was done in June 2001. It was conducted then and 
Um, you know, it, it's a, a pandemic simulation, very similar to the kinds of things that we're seeing now, thanks to COVID. So this seems to be a long-running agenda that was in the works well before 9-11, and they just need the right event that they can use to push this stuff out there, right? What we're seeing is an insane amount of mass surveillance. You can no longer call America a democracy or even a constitutional republic. That's not true at all. This is a totalitarian regime. They use propaganda to provide the veneer of popular support, but we all know that the people don't have a say in anything. That's obvious. So, um, you know, I just thought it was interesting to cover that stuff today. And um, let me know what you guys think of this stuff and what your thoughts are on these articles. So there you are. Hope you enjoyed it. It's Aisha from God FM. If you wish to find us, please look for us on Podbean, Spotify, Amazon, Samsung, Chrome, Apple. And you can also find us on BitChute, Rumble. Uh, some of our videos are on YouTube as well. You can find us on God FM Media, on Telegram for all our videos. Also, uh, for our sermons, our podcasts, you can find them all on Podbean. Just have to sign up for it. And uh, if you wish to contact me, please do admin at godfm.org.uk. Have a good day, everyone. God bless you.